0: You know, I do a lot of meetings with them, and I really emphasize that if the program isn't successful as a group, none of us are successful. So it doesn't matter if you have the best house in town and you give the best food around. I can't bring more people, especially a group, to this community unless we're all successful.
1: You're listening to the Sharing Insights Podcast, a show where we explore stories, strategies, and insights from ecologically and socially beneficial projects throughout Costa Rica. These stories provide landowners everywhere access to unique ideas to inspire better business models for greater success and impact. My name is Jason, and I'm a co-founder of one of these unique places. I've been visiting with other owners of Impact Centers to discuss the successes, challenges, and insights that they've earned along the way. Join me on the adventure. A more sustainable world awaits. In this interview, we visit with Megan Casey of the Chilamate Rainforest Eco Retreat in at Heredia, Costa Rica. I enjoyed this conversation immensely. Community outreach can be at the core of a project's success and has been a long-standing topic of interest for me. My only regret is that we didn't get Megan's husband, Davis, in on this conversation. What a great guy. Unfortunately, I only got to know him after the interview. These two are such an inspiring couple. Megan shares an array of examples for how one might engage with the local community in empowering ways. We touch on what it's like to raise children amidst a family business like this. We also hear about how they began to organize homestay and farm stay experiences for their guests with neighbors in their village. This episode is filled with several practical examples for how anyone can initiate resiliency in their greater community. Finding gems like this and heading out to capture their stories in a way that also captures the essence of their project has been a joy for me. Taking the extra time to edit publish and promote them for listeners to like you is also a joy but one that comes with extra expense if you feel like these interviews are providing you with either practical or entertainment value and you'd like to support the show please buy me a coffee you can do so at ko-fi.com forward slash sharing insights the links in the sidebar of the website as well as in the show notes that all being said i bring you megan casey Megan has been here in Costa Rica for 18 years, but she and her husband Davis founded the Eco Lodge here about 14 years ago in 2006. Since then, they've raised a family, they've had countless guests that come through here, and they have built one of the most beautiful eco lodges i've come across yet in the country it's it's really got that hand-built fill with the intention to make it a little higher class you know it's really the the touches the artistic moments that are around every turn make this place super worth visiting for sure but besides building a beautiful place and raising a lovely family Megan and Davis have been really active in integrating themselves into the local community, providing service for the community, and not just trying to raise their own project up, but to really give a hand out to the locals in the region that wants to also join the movement of ecological carefulness and land management and home care even, And so we're going to explore some of the really great programs that Megan and her family have been able to implement here on the land, as well as use for reaching out to the community. So with that, hello, Megan. Thanks for joining us. Thank
0: you for having me.
1: Yay. Uh, before we get into all the great things that you're doing locally, tell us a little bit about how you and Davis came to buy this place and to decide to do something way bigger than yourselves.
0: Yeah, well, I'll try and make a long story short, but um, I studied communications and Latin American studies way back in uh, Canada and Vancouver, and then I ended up doing a year abroad in Ecuador, so I learned Spanish. Um and through the Canadian International Development Agency when I graduated university, I got a job, an internship to come to Costa Rica. So I did. I came here for a year long internship and my job was to work with coffee producers. So I was working with an organization called Co Cafe, which is an upper level cooperative here in Costa Rica. And We had an amazing opportunity. I was partnered with another woman from Canada, young woman at that point, a student um, who just graduated in journalism. And so they offered us a spot on the six o'clock news in Ottawa, Canada, called the Java Journey. So um, we lived with coffee producers and farmers and traveled the country um, to visit with the different cooperatives that are part of CoCafe. One of them is Kopi Sarafiki, which is here in our region, who we've been supporting since then. That's the coffee we shared today. Amazing stuff. So that's how, yeah, that's how I came to Costa Rica. And then shortly after that, um, actually over the Christmas that I was here, I had some holidays. So some friends came to visit and we went to the coast and that's how I met my husband. He's from Sarafiki, but he was working on the Pacific coast at that time. And so through some common friends, because I was living actually in Sarapiqui, he wasn't. Um, at that point, I was living with family who runs the cooperative in Sarapiqui. So we met through some common friends and then the rest is, is history. Um, I ended up staying on. I didn't go home ever after my internship. So once that was finished, Davis and I moved to the, he was at the coast, I moved in with him in Santa Cruz in Guanacaste. And then we, some time passed, not that much, and I was pregnant with my first child, Yuvia. And so we decided to move to Sarapiki because I wanted to spend some time with Davis's family before I took him off to Canada. The idea was to um, move to Canada, get some money to come back to be able to do something in Costa Rica. So we were both uh, he quit his job, sold all his things. We moved to Sarapiqui with nothing and lived at my mother-in-law's house, which was supposed to be a really short period of time as we got Davis a visa to go to Canada. Well, it turns out um, we also got married because we thought that would be helpful for getting a visa, which wasn't at all. In retrospect, it was the worst thing we could have done because Davis became all of a sudden not a tourist right um we had just gotten married they had just changed the law because when we first met Costa Ricans didn't need a visa to go to Canada similar as Canadians and Americans can come here for three months on a tourist visa it was the same to go to Canada for Costa Ricans but then they changed the law they closed the borders got really strict about it so it ended up taking us forever to get this visa and my daughter was born here in Costa Rica obviously we're still living at my mother-in-law's house which I don't recommend to anybody to ever do (laughs) but when you're engaged (laughs) when you're engaged and expecting a child um so here we are living at my mother-in-law's my firstborn child um in a totally different culture and Davis is trying to work in whatever because he'd quit his good job to come to this rural region um so he was, you know, he got a pickup truck and he was, you know, trying to work, set, help sell different agricultural products. And he was doing his best, working really long hours. I was at home with my mother-in-law, <laughs> my new ward. So we really wanted to do a project, something where we could work together, where he didn't have to go off to work six days a week and me stay by myself, you know, trying to raise our family. So we wanted to do something together. We knew that. That was the... That was the goal, and we used to come to this river a lot just to get out of the house and to spend some time in nature. Serapiki River, so we spent a lot of time here. And one day, my husband said to me, Davis said, "Let's what he thinks over there. Like, let's go see what that place is." You could see there was, you know, flowers and trees and things here, and so we came to poke our heads in, and um, almost got eaten by some dogs. And a caretaker came out and Davis said, what, is this place for sale? And she said, I don't know, uh, but I can, if you want to leave your phone number, go ahead and leave your phone number. So we did. And then I think it was two days later, Davis got a call from the owner, from a woman, and she was apparently looking to sell this property. And it turns out that her family and my husband's family have all this history, you know, three generations of uh, being neighbors and friends. And this woman, Lorraine Powell, she had started this, she had a vision to do something like what we've done here. She'd started the project with her, with her father and um, her father had passed away. She's an English teacher in, in San Jose. So it was really difficult for her to try and keep this project on her own. She wanted it to be forever in conservation. So she was not prepared to sell to this big land baron over here and she didn't want the hotel next door to ever get it either because she wanted it to be someone from Sarapiki. She has a very high standard, she's a very principled woman and it turned out that we fit most of those boxes. So um, we had no money, we had no idea how we could purchase anything but um, she made it really easy. And we got some family supporters and friends back us. And we made a plan and we thought, this is it. We're going to do something here. This is our project. We can work together. And uh, we've been, I don't know where time went, but 14 years later, two more children. <laughs> and here we are.
1: Wow. Yeah. I always get so inspired by, I definitely came down here looking for a place to buy and start a project. But you're just one of these that were called by the land itself and it all just presented itself to you. And I think that's always such a beautiful story for those that just really are listening and hear the call and say yes, even though they don't know how it'll work. And it has more than worked for you somehow from that place. You've created this place that can accommodate, you said, 50 people for events? Yeah, up
0: to 50 people.
1: It's just amazing what you've done with since then.
0: And, you know, Davis is the builder, the electrician, the plumber, usually the head chef, Mm -hmm. uh, you know. So he's really with very little formal education. His dad was a foreman, and so he'd learned. Davis started working when he was, like, 11, I think, at different jobs, and so... He's um, him and a couple of local people that help him. Yeah, we've dreamed this place up. We would have this money or this, you know, this products. And um, I remember when we were living at my mother-in-law's, Davis is one of those forever junk collectors. Kind of drives me crazy. And not only does he collect junk, he um, used to buy junk from the garbage man. So he had collected all this glass, like old glass pieces of glass big pieces of glass and I said what are you what are you doing with all this and he said one of these days these are going to be the windows of your house and I said okay (laughs) here we are at my mother-in-law's and uh well they are the windows of the lodge in the back that we went and saw so um he's amazing you know to do so much with so little I remember with our old car our trooper he went to the tree farm across the road from us and he got special prices because he would choose the trees that were crooked or had you know um like that one <laughs> right which is what <laughs> had, gives had great this place shapes. so much
1: style and yeah. he
0: and his helpers they cut them down he hauled them here with his trooper
1: that's a small car yeah okay
0: uh, hauling them behind the trooper and wow. then you know the rocks here we've had lots of volunteers over the years One of my great friends from Vancouver, her and her husband, had made a uh, drive from Vancouver to all the way to Panama, made a stop here for a month or so, and helped us haul most of those rocks that are now the the walls and the pieces around here.
1: Well, this really, this place seems to have called itself into being. uh, Yeah, it absolutely
0: did. You know, I remember still being really frustrated living at my mother in law's, coming to the river. And looking up at the trees and thinking, this is where I want to be, not in this little house, not in this, you know, really difficult situation. And we're the owner of that tree now. (laughs) And, you know, it's just it's absolutely amazing how it's all come together.
1: Wow. So not only did you not strive to find a place and it seems like the, the materials and the vision to build this place little by little, also organically happened. But you guys also seem to be listening when it comes to what to do here. And that's one of the reasons I was really excited to come and talk with you because there's a there's a lot of us foreign landowners that are in the country that, well, for one, we come with varying Spanish skills, which is often a large initial determining factor in how integrated we get mm-hmm. to the comu- with the community. But even having learned Spanish myself, I found uh, in my neighborhood, it took me some years to really talk with and learn to identify with the neighbors. And honestly, I still have some challenges with that. You know, I come from a pretty progressive background and having some fairly conservative, not necessarily by ethics, but just by not having tons of input. These rural farmers that maybe just got the internet a small handful of years ago, a window to the outside world, you know, some simple people that just don't have the life experiences or the ambitions that I have. And so Sometimes it's hard to relate, and I I know that that is something that comes into play with a lot of landowners that are doing progressive projects, and their neighbors often feel alienated from them, and sometimes we can feel a little alienated from our neighbors, and that can change at any moment. And I'm grateful to have my own fair share of stories in which we've taken the initiative to integrate more with our neighbors and offer more of what we have and ask them more questions and listen more and learn more and create goodwill that way, which I think, uh, well, I'm happy to say, you know, we're doing something and it feels really good. And I feel like our neighbors receive us well. And we've, I told you about the permaculture course we taught for a dozen of our neighbors, and that went well. But you guys have gone deep. You guys have gone deep, and I'm sure having your husband being from the region has been Mm -hmm. a major foot in that door. But I imagine what you've done to integrate with the community and be of assistance is probably something replicable, even if one doesn't have family in the Pueblo.
0: Yeah. You know what? The first programs that I did were personally going and giving English classes. So I would personally go and people would come to me. Lots of young people wanted access to English. So I would personally go and give English classes to my neighbors, um, people's children. And that's how I made friends with so many different people. And there was just such a need, right? So it was like service first. Here we are trying to start this place. I think I told you we didn't have electricity for the first over four years. I had a newborn child, but i we made time, you know, service to the community has always been, I think, central to everything that we've done. And, um, and it's a very selfless thing that one does, but it has, there's just so many benefits, right? You know? So the very first thing I did was personally go off and help people with English. And then when we were able to get some volunteers and Like Davis had mentioned earlier, whenever we had a volunteer with a certain profile and we thought, well, this is great. Somebody in the community is going to want to learn about this. Then we would facilitate, you know, a group of children um, or a group of adults to learn. Um, We had a couple of ladies come, for example, that were art teachers. And they thought, wouldn't it be cool to do an art workshop? And so they did a three-day workshop with the local kids on self-portraits with all these, you know, natural materials. So... Just really whatever came our way, trying to put it to service for the community.
1: Were you doing these classes here on the farm? We would do them here at
0: the retreat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we would invite the people to the retreat. As we became more of a sort of hotel and got more established, we, we, we didn't want to... We couldn't be like this kid's camp, right, all the time. So um, we would usually take those classes or those people into the community and do those programs there. We've always dreamed of building a sort of learning center or something in the community. It's a process that, you know, it's a big undertaking, something we can't do on our own and still on the back burner. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's you know, that's how we started that. It's a great
1: start. It's I mean that's something that sounds like something
0: anyone, anyone can, do. can do. Absolutely. Yeah. And the less Spanish you speak, the better because you're it's real English. So that's something that anyone can do, you know. Okay. And it's worth every every bit of it. You know? So
1: how did you start sending guests to go stay with your neighbors instead of stay with you, which is beautiful.
0: Yeah. Well, it's the same thing. We owe every you know, we're we're a conservation project, right? So the, the whole the whole reason that we are in existence is to preserve the rainforest. Our piece of rainforest that we have, which is twenty-five hectares of forest, that ultimately we want to expand. We've expanded a little bit, but not as much as that we as we would like. So we participated um, when we started in all kinds of programs, one of which was With Rainforest Alliance, so we did a lot of, um, we actually had three full audits from Rainforest Alliance, so they helped us learn how to build our business. We had the social bit down, we had the environmental part really well, but we didn't have a lot of the administrative side of things. So working with them, we learned how to do certain processes that neither Davis or I are business administration students.
1: Can you describe to our listeners what Rainforest Alliance is if they're not familiar? Sure.
0: Rainforest Alliance, as far as I know, is an organization that certifies certain crops um, like chocolate, coffee, but they also verify ecotourism organizations. So you can become verified by them. So they an audit, for example, is, you know, do you have a sustainability plan? Do you have a business plan? Do you have, you know, all these plans in place? And if you don't, we were part of an organization called, it was through Rainforest Biodiversity Group. I think it was through the South-South Cooperation. Anyways, we received free of cost these audits. So I got off track there a little bit. But all of that to say that with that, um, through this participation, right? Through all this community participation, my husband participated in or participates um, in lots of community groups, so do I, on boards and local community development organizations. And one of the organizations that we participated with um, would go to the monthly meetings is the biological corridor. So there's this thing called the Mesoamerican Biological Corridor, which really aims to connect all of the feasible pieces of rainforest that are left into a unified trail where migratory species can pass. So The Mesoamerican Biological corridor goes from Mexico all the way to South America. Here in Costa Rica and, you know, between Mexico and South America, there's many subgroups um, here specifically. We're in in the San Juan de Selva Biological Corridor. And this organization, the San Juan de Selva Biological Corridor, does a lot of research, you know, on all the reasons why we need to protect these areas. They were... um, The instigator for a new wildlife refuge that was opened in Costa Rica called Makenki, the mixed wildlife refuge. So there was a lot of counting, a lot of science involved in it, getting this this biological corridor or this new wildlife refuge off the ground. It was a new concept at that point because it's a mixed wildlife refuge because there's actually people that live in this land that became declared a wildlife refuge and what we learned through our participation is that the community just wasn't consulted ever and there's this animosity between these scientists and these conservationists and the local community so all of a sudden you own this land you're within what's become this new wildlife refuge and you can't have paved roads and you can't have pineapple plantations and you can't do all these things but there wasn't appropriate consultation with the community and there was no program or plan to benefit the community so you can't do these hundred things but you can do and we're going to train you we're going to give you resources you know to do all these other things there was none of that and i remember very clearly that it came to the point where the locals actually burned down one of the research stations and there was just a lot of animosity so when we started our project It was really important to both davis and i that it always you know for our rainforest conservation to be sustainable over time our community the rain the communities that live around the rainforest have to perceive a benefit feel a benefit feel included in the project and so that's what's motivated our social programs really to make sure that you know our community knows what we're doing feels on board, feels like they get us, they're part of what we're doing, um, and that it's a benefit to all of us. So that lesson we learned early on, and that's really been the basis of, you know, the work that we try and do in the community.
1: So was this organization already establishing this regional preservation area after you bought land, or this was already started before you guys? We got here? Had
0: just turned it into when we started participating they had just passed it so just became a wildlife refuge
1: and then you're here you're getting started your davis's family's already in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and this is becoming a topic for you and because your neighbors are talking about it and you decided to take proactive measures because of that
0: yeah we just knew that in our I mean, we could just be here in our bubble, right? Doing our thing, bringing people in, trying to make a business out of it. But I have over two kilometers of rainforest that borders with the community. And so if I don't, if they don't feel like they're benefiting, I can't look after it. I mean, I can't have park guards there all the time. And so that's when trees start going missing, hunting, you know, lots of species are are high on the list that are in there's not a lot of rainforest left and people used to hunt all these things for food and when you don't have any public rainforest left um it becomes you know a problem so to avoid poaching to avoid trees being stolen and things like that it's been much easier and i think more cost effective to really involve the community
1: Create yeah well.
0: and so early on we've managed to have great alliances. Um, you were asking how we started um, to send students farm stay to program. stay in farm stays or, or families. And one of our first clients, before we had electricity, I think, maybe just after we got it, I have to ask her. But one of our first clients was World Leadership School. And World Leadership School is an organization based in Colorado. And they, uh, they partner with schools in the US and Canada, and they try and partner those schools with the program overseas. So it's a global education program in different parts of the, they try, they go to, I don't even know now how many countries, one of them is Costa Rica. So I work for them as the Costa Rican coordinator. So I've had the amazing opportunity to design these leadership programs, educational programs with them and be able to, like I had, mentioned to you before funnel donations that these schools do into community projects um really work with our different communities around the rainforest and part of what we want is that these families or students in the case of world leadership school it's a class of students for example that they don't get a typical costa rican tourism kind of experience so they'll go and stay for example in this community linda vista which is right next to the retreat um We started training the families in food manipulation and, you know, how to host people from other countries that you can't speak the language, right? Because our neighbors don't speak English and most of the visitors don't speak Spanish. And how to not treat them like tourists, right? How to try and incorporate them into your family and um, strategies. So we've done a lot of work that way and usually have, I would say, probably about 15 or 16 of these groups a year that go and stay in different communities we work with six communities around our forest and so they'll stay a few days here at the retreat and then a few days with a family um, so that's how we started it really wow. with that organization and occasionally we get families or couples who are really interested in having some kind of a farm stay or home stay experience and so we coordinate that for them too wow even though it's a loss of business in one on the one side it's money that goes directly to our families right to the yeah. to the community members so it's been amazing to see for me as a coordinator how you know every time there's a new group and they leave and then they'll invite me over look at all the things i did to the house you know the improvements because it's money in most cases, that I'm giving to the mother of the family who would otherwise not have
1: any any income, income,
0: right? Yeah. So it's all of a sudden income that she can use however she sees fit, and uh, it's just so rewarding to see how much they've developed themselves and their own families. So
1: wonderful, so yeah.
0: So that's some it's, that's a cool it's story. feel good work. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: And really hearing you tell the story was actually anticipating where my mind went for is maybe, you know, because this place is so hand built over 14 years, maybe you had an event and you didn't have capacity of rooms and you needed the locals, but you had space and you were still turning over. But that thought is something I just, I, I want to throw out to the listeners. I know like on our farm, we just started and then we were like, oh, let's do a permaculture design course. And we had like a house. Right. Right. And we had a school bus and another shack that some volunteers were staying in at the time. And so we got busy and invested money into building a couple of roofs so we could have some tent platforms for people to stay in. And, you know, we've built our infrastructure at our place event by event. Mm. Every time we do, oh, we're going to do we've this done event, that too. <laughs> let's put up more space for people, which is great. You know, we've got what we've got, but Really, I don't know how it didn't. Well, it didn't occur to me because my Spanish was terrible. So I didn't have the personal confidence to go into the Pueblo and be like, hey, we're going to invite a dozen students. Does anybody want to house them? Right. But honestly, thinking back on it, like that's a brilliant way for a landowner to start holding events and create goodwill and not have to invest the money that we did into really what ended up being substandard uh housing anyhow <laughs> Anyways, Right. they might
0: have done better with a local family
1: right yeah
0: i mean it's something i would say i've like i said i work with six communities in that in that way and i i look for communities that are already organized that already want to do something to develop sustainably themselves so here in the Vista, it's it's always been with a women's organization that i work with and this is like the closest to our retreat and the first community that we did um Homestays with or farm stays. But then, for example, my friend at the organic farm. So we've been working with him. I don't know how we met actually through the Earth University who were giving courses here for local farmers. So we were just the venue and I met all these amazing farmers that were learning, you know, these great techniques from the Earth University. One of them is my dear friend Danielle, who for years, when are you going to bring me tours? When are you going to bring me groups? When are you going to come to my farm? And, you know, we got going. And now it's something that, you know, any group that visits, I highly recommend it. Most of our, even the families that visit us or couples, we would suggest that they go and spend, you know, half a day at this farm. And so for me, that was an easy move, right? So he's got this network, he's motivating people to become organic farmers. So I don't have to like, make this group of people right it's already a group that's working and i deal with daniel and he he introduces me to all his neighbors and they have it's so much easier when you're working with an organization that already works together when you mention
1: this organization you're referring to daniel and whoever he has helping him with this organic farm he
0: has an organic farm but he also has an association of organic farmers So his goal is to expand organic farming to all the farms around his property, because like he would say, you know, I can have all these amazing practices, but if the pineapple plantation is next to me with all these agrochemicals, you know, it's really not, it's not working. So he's, um, he has his own network of followers and, um, people that he supports and uh, an organic farmers association. And so they became our next community. For example, Mm. where we bring homestays. So it's not just me and a neighbor, but there's this responsibility to the group, right? So I found, I worked in one not so organized community, didn't have their own internal organization and leadership. And I found some of the houses tried to sort of like one up each other. And it didn't, you know, it wasn't that cohesive. We are this community. It, It wasn't successful. It wasn't nearly as successful. So that's how we've started working. As we move to a new community to support them, we will work with a group. So, for example, we have another community called Rojo Maca. They came together and actually to preserve this Lago Jalapa, to preserve this lake that they own communally. And they, they've since turned it into a wildlife refuge called Tapiria. And so all these families that are part of that community, as we had the opportunity to get volunteers to teach English, for example, one of our English volunteers, we would send him to stay with them a couple of days a week. There's only one bus in and one bus out. So he'd go for, you know, a few days and try and help them with English because they were trying to work in ecotourism. And that way we, you know, met with the whole community and became great friends with people. And then they naturally became our next Homestay, farm stay, you know, community. So.
1: Okay. so, what you were saying is actually pretty interesting to me. I wouldn't have thought of that, but now that you say it, it makes sense. So, you had one of the communities you were working with, the Homestay hosts were actually competing with each other for guests. And yeah. so it was becoming problematic. Very much so. I can see that. I mean, yeah. people get desperate and they, they get that little bit of tourist dollar and they exactly. want it and they see somebody else get it next time and they're like, oh, but what about me? And
0: so, yeah. So, what have
1: you done to help kind of minimize that in other programs?
0: Well, you know, I do a lot of meetings with them and I really emphasize that if the program isn't successful as a group none of us are successful so it doesn't matter if you have the best house in town and you give the best food around I can't bring more people especially a group to this community unless we're all successful so the success of your neighbor is just as important as your success because ultimately we're not going to have more groups if we don't all succeed Right, so that's yeah. that's been it. I'm really trying to explain to people that we want an authentic experience. So, you know, rushing out to get hot dogs and cereal or something isn't part of that experience. So you might think you're this very humble rural farmer, and all you have is yuca and um, plantains. And when I start going through all the things that they have with them, you know, I say these people you know often don't have any idea where food comes from you know you just being able to take somebody to your garden and show them all the things you grow is richness right mm-hmm. way more than you know buying them cereal or something that they would be able to eat at home so right. i try and encourage them to only serve local food and as much as possible that it be from your own property yeah yeah
1: and that's so that's just another thing for us to all remember you know like for People in the tropics, boiled bananas can be seen as poor people food. Yeah. Right? It's a filler. But man, the the millions of people who come to this country every year looking for authentic experiences have never in their life boiled a banana. Yeah. They just absolutely. never thought of it. And when you sit down to the first boiled banana, you're like, Oh, wow, this is <laughs> this is interesting. Yeah. This is It's like, oh my gosh, I never would have thought that. And then they're having this revelatory experience about a food that they've been eating since they were, before they had teeth all their life. People have been eating bananas, but they come and have this ethnic experience of people just really using what they have creatively and, and humbly. And it's actually this phenomenal experience for them rather than what many of the host sites might think is an embarrassing
0: right thing absolutely and they've learned to be proud of it and they've learned to embrace it but there's this i don't know i guess in costa rica in the sort of move to become more professional certainly in these rural areas i mean i've seen i've heard teachers at our our local public schools you know teaching the kids from these rural families that, you know, they have to become professionals. They have to mm. get out of agriculture. And so they have all these feelings about it. And I find, you know, obviously the tourists who are visiting and learning about all this food from the land, from your garden, it's amazing, but it's also been really eye-opening and um, I think empowering for the local people to say, hey, yeah, this is, you know, we have all this and um, and it's from our, our community. I had the honour to facilitate, uh, it was actually back in those days, it was, I guess, uh, one of these global, a global interaction between schools. So I worked with a kindergarten class from Berkeley Carroll School in in New York, who are doing amazing things in terms of global education. This was through World Leadership School. And they asked me to, you know, we based this global interaction on the book Hungry Planet. I don't know if you've seen that.
1: I'm not familiar with it. It's
0: this book of photos of what you know, they put families together with what they eat for a week behind them. And so, and they're all over the world.
1: I have seen that. Yeah,
0: it's really amazing. And so that was sort of the motivation for this interaction. And um, so we had this kindergarten class from New York and we had our local kindergarten class from here with the kids in Costa Rica already, you know, learned how to slaughter the chicken and, you know, pick food from their garden. And we had kids in New York who didn't know that chicken came from chickens. And, you know, it was absolutely mind-blowing. But the kids here are like, oh, look at that supermarket, you know? But I think there was this... I think at first they felt, you know, we're these poor people and they have all these options. And then I think it became a really powering experience for them to, you know, be able to take the camera around their farm and, you know, show where their food came from.
1: Yeah, Yeah. that's great. Yeah, we take so many things for granted. I mean, just watching people nearly fall down in surprise when they see that a pineapple doesn't, doesn't grow go in on a tree. tree.
0: Isn't that amazing? <laughs> <laughs> I get that all the time. <laughs>
1: yeah. 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 No, it's, it's a great thing that you're providing and that I love that you are, Enriching your neighbors' lives with the reminder of how precious their humble
0: life really absolutely. is. Absolutely, Yeah.
1: And besides the the farm stays, you're also encouraging your some of your neighbors to teach cooking classes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Which is another
1: great innovation that you can yeah, so it's easily like, do. You know,
0: farm to table kind of cooking classes. Mm-hmm. So they'll go you know, through the garden and pick the food and then prepare it together, um, usually with no translation lots of sign language. If people, you know, want real specific information, we will provide a translator. But part of the fun is trying to have that intercultural experience. Yeah, so I know.
1: I'm the kind of person, if I'm, I'm a shy guy, if I, you know, if, if I'm trying to teach somebody something and I don't have the language or something, I clam up oftentimes and, well, I just don't offer it, you know, but then I'm starting to really, you know, I'm in my life, putting myself a little bit more over the edge, like for instance, with this podcast, and, yeah, you I'm know, really appreciating the magic that comes in having experiences that are on the edge like that, those intimidating, yeah, uh, you know, like tense experiences. I mean, it's obviously challenging when those challenging experiences are actually threatening and you actually like concern for yourself. But when there's not a threat and there's no danger and there's no, you know, fear it's there's no actual <laughs> social risk or anything like that. it's just it's just an exciting tense uncertain creative mysterious moment yeah. where you're communicating with somebody else in a different language but you both signed up for it and that tension is part of the magic yeah, and absolutely. the gift of the experience. Yeah, yeah, I have amazing neighbors
0: and they um, everyone is satisfied after, you know, this cooking class. So it's, you know, it's partly the social aspect, mm-hmm. being at a local farm. If you can't do a farm stay, you can at least spend, you know, some hours in a local person's kitchen, in their garden. It's absolutely amazing that we talk about in leadership development, you know, the, the comfort zone, the stretch zone and the fear zone. So getting people into their stretch zone is where amazing relationships and learning happens.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's the simple act of inviting neighbors to show guests a farm to table experience and they can cook whatever they want, but you've also got some neighbors providing chocolate. Yeah, yeah?
0: absolutely. What does that um, look like? Yeah, so we grow a lot of chocolate here in Sarapiqui. And on our property, we've seen a few old trees. Giant trees, my gosh. And chocolate was actually, these lands here in Sarapiqui were originally occupied by the Votos indigenous group before colonization. And their currency was cacao seeds, um, cacao. So it's, you know, something that's been grown in this area for a really long time. We have two neighbors who are amazing naturalist guides and birders who we've been working with since we started this place. And they their family owns a lot of land and they were some of some of it was cacao plantations. And so they decided to quit their jobs at the biological station and you know they were working in tourism and start their own chocolate tour. So it's been really fun to support them. You can walk there from here. They do this phenomenal, super interactive tour from the tree to the chocolate bar and all the processing and tasting all the different stages in between so and did
1: you have any hand in helping them get that set up or you just send them we guests? just
0: send them guests mm-hmm. we've supported them from the beginning we sell mm-hmm. their chocolate and okay. uh yeah they set it up themselves and they they're our neighbors you know local yeah. Chilamate folks so it's been really fun to support them and right. that's the thing i mean you can try and have all the, I could try and have the cooking classes and the farm tour and the, you know, chocolate tour. You could provide it all. We could do it all. But the idea has always been to provide those opportunities to people in the community. It lifts us all up that, you know, everybody is involved in, in something.
1: So, you know, want I want to kind of touch on this and I'm not sure where it's going to go, but we have these projects. They cost a lot of money to set up and maintain and you've worked to get guests in here and you're sharing all of these different ways that you send your guests money off the farm Mm -hmm. and there's the obvious goodwill that comes from that building relationships with your village as well as providing enhanced experiences for your guests in your business model do you take a commission on any of that? Do you have any other ways that you've been able to monetize these outreach programs in a way that also feeds your own program?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I told you we're not we're not business admin students, neither my husband or myself. And so that's a learning curve, right? I mean, you have to be it has to be worthwhile and at least sustainable financially. So yeah, we would take a commission for organizing these activities. Usually for World Leadership School, when we coordinate, they pay us a coordination fee, so we don't take a commission at all. My, I'm always pushing for higher prices to give those directly, to, you know, to the families. So it is economically viable for us at the retreat. Obviously, it's a better business for me to have them here seven nights <laughs> instead of say four, three, and the rest in the community. But it's part of it, right? It's mm-hmm. part of that balance, and it's been worth every every moment of it. But yeah, there's certainly ways like the, you know, chocolate tour, we send them all of our guests, they pay us a commission. Same with, you know, the farm tour and things like that. Wow.
1: I, I am in love with your project <laughs> every minute more. Thank uh, you. Besides what you're doing in the Pueblo too, that's not the only community that you guys are making sure to keep in mind with your efforts, but your kids... You yeah. found ways to integrate them into all of what you're doing. What are some examples of how your kids have been able to grow with the programs yeah. and benefit?
0: Well, they're so lucky to grow up, you know, in this In this place but it's hard work you know often we're all running around working and then they are too so since they can walk they help (laughs) and i think it's amazing um they've managed to learn you know obviously english a bit of a couple of other languages from different visitors but they help in pretty much whatever sometimes they do kids tours Just spontaneously, if we have a family, they'll take them off. My son has been famous for that. He's super outgoing. My uh, now 12-year-old son, sometimes he gets lost and we don't know where he is and he's off doing the tour. (laughs) Uh, So it's really, you know, fun. If we don't control them, they try and be the bartenders. and (laughs) Just wherever they can help. My oldest daughter is a bit more shy, but super helpful um, in terms of reception and anything i mean they're just like three full-time staff but in a fun way we enjoy it my son aiden who's the middle guy and my youngest daughter kiara who's eight they were born here you know so they had their crib here in the middle of all the action and um it's just been their life so
1: beautiful yeah yeah with what you're doing locally you obviously have found ways for it to support you as well but as just a a family doing all of this it can be a lot and so you've also found ways from your prior background and your life here to bring in support from other organizations and you mentioned this um, world leadership school and you also mentioned to me earlier about Teach United. Yeah. Can you share a little bit with listeners that might want to get involved with other like associations or groups that might be able to help their project help more in the the region? Like what what might you advise to somebody that wants to be a channel for that kind of support regionally
0: yeah i think just to be open you know partnerships i think we're still learning especially now in 2020 just how important it is joint ventures and you know getting other people involved and yeah we've just been open to whatever comes whomever you know just really flowing with who we've got and how we can support each other and and what we can do so you know for us it was really key to have the relationship that we do with World Leadership School. And then that turned into me being on their board for the foundation. And then that turned into as being a pilot project for as we were investing these funds and the organizing these community collaborations, we were really able to have a, an amazing impact on the physical infrastructure of the local public schools, but we weren't able to have like the actual impact on the quality of teaching going on. So as a foundation, um, World Leadership Foundation, the idea was how do we actually impact the quality of teaching? And that's how Teach United was born, um, really, as a way to support local teachers that, rural teachers, that wouldn't otherwise have access to, you know, high quality teacher training. So We run a two-year online teacher training program with coaching. So not only are they getting access to like the best new pedagogy, right, in terms of teaching in the 21st century, but they're being coached throughout that time. So, you know, I don't have the study with me, but you can give people the greatest training available. But if there's not this implementation or coaching to go with it, the level of implementation is really low. So... That's been a really amazing way to be involved on an even bigger level. We now have an agreement with the Ministry of Education on a national level. The National University, La Universidad Nacional, actually accredits our program. So the teachers that participate then can take their certificate and get professional development credits. So it's been this ongoing process that I do in my spare time because of my love of, of education. My parents were both teachers. And Davis and I agreed early on that we wanted our kids to go to the local public system, public school, to be with the neighbors and participate with them. And so I know very well the challenges that the public system faces, especially in a rural area like here. So so that, you know, that led to that that experience. It's so far, it's it's a non-profit organization, of course, and it's been fully financed by donors and grants. Um, which fortunately, I don't have to deal with, but now i'm I'm going to be in charge this coming year of finding local solutions. So we want to be able to finance part of our program from Costa Rican donors and um, businesses. Uh, so that's for Teach United, and of course, us as a business too. We're just you know open to whatever partnerships, in this new new situation that we've all found ourselves in, whatever way we can to yeah. develop and move forward.
1: So I guess the, the answer I'm hearing there is not so much to look for organizations that can support your efforts, but more so find organizations whose efforts you can support.
0: Yeah, And absolutely. through
1: that alliance is where the real gold comes in. I think and so. And speaking of gold, you have... You know, we're, we're talking about some things that might sound, you know, sweet and humble, but you've been able to channel a significant amount of money into this community through these organizations' efforts. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think probably an average of $50,000 a year. So yeah. sometimes it's been hard and frustrating. My husband's usually the foreman on the project, and we're, you know, you abandon certain things here to do things in the community. He's done um, with, You know, so it's a community collaboration project. So, you, Davis as a foreman is the most um, cost effective way for us to do things because he usually donates his time. And so, the community members come together and participate, and the visiting group of of people who raise the funds come together and they actually work on site together to build something that's the community needs. That they've, there's a whole process behind that of, you know, There's this whole process behind that of um, what does the community need? So you want to be really careful. To me, it's super important that we don't come in and say, you know, I might think the community needs X, Y, and Z. But if you don't listen and you don't hear all of the voices, you might just get it really wrong, right? Yeah with very good intentions Super and then common. yeah it happens all the time i've seen it a lot so i have a process that you know we go through and try and listen to people what are your needs what what are you guys already working towards doing and how can we support that right so
1: wow yeah you have shared so much with us, I, I really can imagine many, many listeners getting some value and getting some inspiration for how they can reach out to their community and integrate and create goodwill. And through that, support their own projects and their own desires to make impact in the world. So thanks so much. Where online can people find you? You've said that you're looking, uh, you're open to finding investors, co-creators, even residential members that might want to Buy into the project, live here with you, and do with what you're doing. For people with any of these interests, how do they find you?
0: Yeah. So on our website is a good start. All of our contact information is there www.chilamatirainforest.com. We're also on social media um, Facebook, Chilamati Rainforest Echo Retreat, or myself, Megan Casey, Chilamati Rainforest, my husband, Davis Asofeva, Chilamati Rainforest. We're on Instagram too, but I don't remember what that. I think it's called Chilamate Echo Lodge, because Chilamate Rainforest Echo Retreat didn't fit. We'll dig it up and put it yeah. in the show notes. Uh, sure. It'll be there. But um, any of those ways, any of the emails that exist out there to do with Chilamate Rainforest will come to me. Okay. Yeah, and we're um, been offering a couple of virtual activities too. We mentioned forest therapy, and I'm trying to do. Once or twice a month, a a free virtual forest therapy experience for people.
1: Okay, tease us a little bit. What does that like?
0: That's just, you know, amazing. A forest therapy experience is usually, you know, when we do it in person, usually a four-hour experience. But that's a lot to do virtually, right? Um, And we want people to have access to nature. We have this amazing rainforest with so much to see and hear. So I get set up in the rainforest. And uh, usually it's by Zoom and we have uh, their private closed sessions, but free of cost for people. Um, we also do some by donation or, you know, pay as you can. But uh, it's an amazing way for people to learn about what Forest Therapy is, have the experience. Yeah.
1: And people can find out more about that on your website? On,
0: not yet on okay. our website, but definitely on Facebook Okay. Um, social media. So, and on our Facebook, at, on the Chilamati Rainforest Echo Retreat page, um, we've pinned a video that is also available that's on YouTube called Experience Forest Therapy. And that's about, I think, a 45-minute video introduction to our forest, to the practice of forest therapy. All right, we'll link to that out. directly then. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, I have taken up tons of your time i've thoroughly enjoyed my visit here today and i just want to thank you again for sharing all of these great experiences and ideas with our listeners
0: yeah i'm so glad um you came it's been lovely to host you and uh you'll have to come back i feel like i've missed so much but uh once a year we do a river festival which is a community celebration so if you get to come back for one of those i absolutely suggest it The fellow who was just walking in is our coach, our volunteer soccer coach for the Saturday morning soccer camp. So we'll make sure you get involved in the community, get to the organic farm or, you know, get up to one of the neighbor's houses next time you come for sure.
1: Great. And I know for myself, anybody I meet that has a group of, 20 to 50 people that wants an exquisite place to host them and do something. I'm going to be sending them your way. Absolutely.
0: We're here to help. So thanks for for coming to visit and thanks for, for having us on your podcast. And I'm excited to hear everybody else's stories.
1: What a gift it's been to meet landowners like Casey and Davis who really understand the value of giving. I got so much from this interview. The idea of using the resources of your neighborhood to house guests for events or whenever the simple desire may arise for some guests to have that kind of experience, it's golden. Megan also made it easy to see how teaching English is an easy and low commitment way to make an impact that anyone can do. And I love her reflection that the less Spanish you speak, the better. My biggest takeaway is to remember that when planning outreach projects, it is essential to consult the community that you're aiming to support and invite them to feel included in the process. If more landowners and businesses and communities practiced regional empowerment in the ways that Megan's described, our world would be a more resilient and secure place to live in. If you'd like to help more people get access to these ideas, please go rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever other app you have that ratings are allowed. It's the easiest way for you to help more people find us. You could also share your favorite episode on your social media feeds. Every little bit helps. That's all for now. Check the show notes for links to cool things and go find a neighbor to whom you can lend a helping hand.